0: A lot of people are calling to to drop off suits. Yes. Rabbi Yehuda Schloss sits behind a massive pile of garments.
3: Is it okay if I move this? Yes, okay. yes. you can, move it, can you introduce yourself? Yes, hi. I'm um, Yehuda Schloss. Um, I live in Modin Elite. What would you like to say about... Uh, Do you have a family? Do you have kids? Uh, ah, yes, right. So, uh, I'm... I'm, I'm married with uh, 10 kids. Uh, I just, uh, this last week, married off uh, one of my children. How's that, yes, <laughs> thank you. We're in a small and crowded
0: apartment on the ground floor of a large building on Arav Shach Street in ultra-orthodox Bnebrak. Every possible inch of wall is covered with clothes racks and hangers. Their suits, pants, coats, blouses, shirts, all carefully pressed in plastic protectors and with little tags hanging from them. Like a dry cleaner. Yeah, yeah. It's the same idea. Yeah. Yehuda, salt and pepper beard, white shirt, big black yarmulke, is a shatnez tester at the Bnebrak Municipal Shatnez Laboratory. So, Rabbi Shloss, my main question is, what on earth is shatnez?
3: Mm-hmm. Shatnez means wool and linen mixed together.
0: The weaving together of wool and linen fibers is, according to the books of Leviticus and Deuteronomy, forbidden. What is the actual problem about mixing linen and wool?
3: And... The question is a good question. We have to do what God told us to do, right? This is the way we have to live. It's not possible for us to understand everything. So some of the laws are given to us to know we do because God knows what's good for us and knows right for the world.
0: In other words, because the Torah says so. And here in Bnebrak, that's a winning argument. Throughout the day, people come in and drop off clothes to be inspected for shatnis. That is, to make sure that they don't, God forbid, contain both linen and wool. Yehuda and the other testers open up seams, extract threads, examine fibers under
3: the microscope. If we talk, for example, about uh, men's suits, men's suits have many inner components. Most people don't even realize, but inside there are many, uh, many layers of linings many uh, reinforcements, uh, tapes, uh, collars, um, shoulder pads, and uh, buttonholes. When we check a suit, we have to come across uh, 40, 50 um, points in a suit until we get to every place with this uh, uh, possibility that it could be sharpness. Once Yehuda is done with his inspection, he sends
0: the garments down the hall to Ben to be put back together.
4: My name is Ben Epstein. I am a tailor. I've been a tailor for about 14 years now, and I've been working at the Mabadat Shatnez in B'nai Brock for close to four years.
0: Ben, wearing suspenders and a matching tie, leans on his sewing machine. He has a measuring tape on his shoulder. Where do you come in?
4: So, the clothes have to be opened up, and, you know, people, you know, you don't want to be walking around with uh, with your lining hanging open. So, somebody has to come in afterwards and close them up. So... I do that, and as well, if there is a problem of shatnez in a garment, I will replace the affected piece and return the garment as
0: as new and for someone who 's less familiar with this, how great of a transgression is it to wear something that is shatnez um, i wouldn 't want to uh, say
4: you know that one mitzvah is more chamor than another, but um, shatnez is definitely a worthwhile mitzvah to uh, to pursue, and it's a mitzvah that's
0: relevant uh, no matter what stripe of uh, Jew you are. He points to a pile of contraband shatnez.
4: Um, this right here is actually wool and linen woven together.
0: So, so you look at this and you and you're like, uh, this is really like an offending material, basically.
4: Uh, what's left of my hair falls out?
0: Ben, would you say that you're pretty passionate about chatnez? Yeah, it's a mitzvah that's very near to
4: my profession as a tailor. And
0: do you see yourself doing this for years to come?
4: Yeah, I'm happy that I can apply what I do day to day to help further a mitzvah, you know, as well as, you know, making customers happy. That's, uh, yeah, don't know what else you could ask for.
0: Hey, I'm Ishi Harman, and this is Israel's Story. Israel's Story is brought to you by Tablet Magazine and the Jerusalem Foundation. Our episode today, Shatniz, is all about things that usually don't, and according to some, never should be mixed. So in Bnebrak, it's linen and wool. But throughout the country, there are obviously many pairings that, at least stereotypically, don't go together. Jerusalemites in the beach, Tel Avivis in the Kotel, Apoel and Maccabi fans, Haaretz and Israel, Ayom readers, and on and on and on. Israeli society is often described as a collection of demographic bubbles, self-contained ecosystems, each with its own population, its own culture, its own version of reality. But in such a small country, those bubbles are bound to butt up against each other. And inevitably, there's intermingling. Some see that as the secret of Israeli vitality. Others as an existential threat. Still, no taboo and social mixing has persisted for quite as long, or with quite as much vigor, as the one that stands at the core of our story today. Here are Yoshi Fields and Dina Kraft with The Family Tree.
5: That's Rochelle. Sasha Gray. Black beard. He has a black beard. Oh, she's just about to lay an egg. I know that face. I know that face. That. Yeah, I'm pushing.
6: <laughs> Amir Jabarin loves chickens. He always has. Brain is chicken coop, which is right next to his parents' home, high up in the hills of Ulma um Facham in northern Israel. Amir is 27, apple-cheeked and portly, He coos at Rochelle and cuddles Blue Junior, the rooster, in his arms, gazing down at him like a proud father. His brood squawks, clucks, and flutters around him, some at his feet, others perched on branches. He's been breeding chickens for years, mixing different types and producing different eggs. As he ducks out of the coop, he picks up a basket of eggs.
5: we get white ones and brown ones, Green! (laughs) Light green, dark green, speckled
6: green, pink. It almost looks like a batch of like Easter eggs or something where like people paint them, you know? Yeah,
5: and they're very special.
6: Amir's own story, not unlike the eggs he's holding, is one of mixed heritage. But it's also one of broken taboos and a complicated sense of belonging. He grew up with sisters telling him he was Jewish and parents telling him he was a Muslim Arab. To
5: tell you about my life story... I would have to start
6: by telling you the stories of my three parents. Here in the land of the Bible, Amir's story echoes an ancient one, that of Abraham, Sarah, and Hagar. Dina and I have come here to Amir's family home to hear that modern-day biblical tale, to hear how he, Amir, came into this world and who he feels he is today. But we're not the only ones hearing this story told in its entirety and in chronological order, for the first time. There are details of his life that are still a mystery to Amir himself. Over the years, he's heard bits and pieces, but despite repeatedly asking his parents, some of it has, till today at least, been left unspoken. Amir had told us to come on a Thursday afternoon because, he said, that's when his mom would be home, but his dad, Mahmoud, wouldn't. See, not only did Mahmoud not want to be interviewed, He was hesitant about the story being told publicly at all. So from the get-go, everything was very
5: delicate.
6: His mother, Afaf, is a petite woman in her mid-60s. She wears the hijab of a devout Muslim and greets us with a warm smile. She's carrying a tray of steaming black coffee in tiny porcelain cups, wrapping us all in the scent of freshly ground cardamom. I can tell Amir is excited we're here. A bit nervous, too. Because in the past, whenever he's asked his mom to fill in the gaps about his own birth, she has brushed him off, rehashing the same familiar details. Occasionally, she'll add in a new unknown anecdote. More often than not, however, she just changes the subject and promises to tell him everything, but not until she's on her deathbed.
5: She doesn't want to feel my pain holding that burden. I am both dreading that day and looking forward to it at the same time. It's it's a horrible feeling. I really don't want to lose her. She's a great woman. But I also want to to hear those stories. I want her to talk to me about her heartache.
1: Maybe there's a way to convince her to do that before then.
5: This interview is one of those ways. <laughs>
7: Afef
6: gestures to a couch in the living room.
7: OK, she would like to just sit here to talk to us.
6: Sure. Doreen Jube, our translator, sits next to her. Even though it was Amir who had pushed his mom to do this interview, he suddenly seems hesitant. We all sit down except for him. He waits at the entrance to the room. Afef calls out to
8: him. Why
6: aren't you sitting here, she asks. Amir responds. I want you to feel more comfortable.
8: <laughs>
6: you know that when I see your eyes, his mom says, I feel happy. With a shy smile, Amir comes over and sits opposite his mom. We're ready to begin. I expect some small talk, but instead, Afef dives right in. She starts off with how she met Amir's father in
8: 1973. I'm from Umm Al and I'm um, Amir's mother. Mahmoud, my fiancé was handsome and kind, and he had charisma. And he was a very strong man. I was in love with him.
6: They were engaged at 19. But though Ff was smitten, she was also shrewd and practical.
8: He had to build me a house. I wanted to have a house for my own.
6: So like Jacob in the Bible, Amir's father Mahmoud toiled for seven years in order to marry the woman he loved. At the end of the seventh year, in 1980, the house was finished—the very same house where we're now sitting. Mahmoud asked for her hand once again. Afaf said yes. They got married and immediately set out to start a family.
8: I wanted a baby. I wanted to be a mother. But God didn't give us kids. We went to doctors and did tests.
6: The neighbors and some relatives began to gossip.
8: They talked. They said, Is she pregnant? Is she not? What happened with her? What's the matter? They'd say, Strange, poor, poor woman. They'd pray for me. They'd say, God compensate her. A sentence that I just hated. Even my own mother would say it.
6: Afef remembers that Mahmoud's brother even threatened to kick her out of the house if she didn't have a baby. So, like the biblical Hannah, She made a familiar deal, a pact of sorts, with God.
8: I promised God that if I had a child, I would never cut their hair. I promised if I have a baby, it doesn't matter if it's a boy or a girl, I will let their hair
6: grow. God, however, forgot to answer. Meanwhile, her husband got into a terrible fight with his family. The blow-up ended with Mahmoud deciding to leave Umm al-Fakhim altogether.
8: He left the house and went away. I didn't want to leave with him.
6: Now, Mahmoud's decision wasn't so unusual. At the time, many Arab citizens, especially from the geographic periphery, left their towns and villages in search of better jobs. So in 1985, Mahmoud moved out and eventually found both a job and a flat in Herzliya, about an hour south of Ulm fakhem He worked in a construction site and would return to Afef and Ulm fakhem on the weekends. Early on, there was some talk of Afef joining him, but she was making a good living working at a leather belt factory in Ulm fakhem and decided to stay put. When he'd return home on the weekends, Mahmoud would sometimes bring friends back with him. These were new friends, Herzliya friends, Jewish friends. And it was with one of these friends that Afef formed an unexpected bond. Her name was Batia, a Jewish woman around the same age as Afef.
8: The first time I met her, we sat together. She had charisma. She had a lot of charisma. And she had a lot of life experience. She knew everything. She was strong, clever.
6: Batya Levy was tough and resolute, bulletproof is how one of her daughters would later describe her to me. And she had, indeed, been through a lot. According to welfare department reports, Batya's husband had been abusive to her and their young daughters. She had recently left him and, in the process, also their Jewish Orthodox community. She was now staying at a safe house with her three girls, ages five, eight, and 14. The fact that Mahmoud brought home a female friend didn't phase a fef nor was she concerned about the fact that Batya was Jewish. True, such friendships are rare in Israel, especially back then, but Afef had always danced to her own drum. Open-hearted and trusting, Afef seems to see the best in people, in all people. She let Mahmoud have his freedom, and in turn, he did the same. She would often go out, by herself or with friends, to Uma Fahim's cafes, something that was definitely not the norm in their conservative Muslim society. And, as she repeats time and again throughout our interview, she never suspected that there was anything going on between Mahmoud and Batya, mainly because Batya quickly became such a close friend to her. A soulmate, almost. She'd often come even without Mahmoud.
8: She used to visit for one or two days. She and her daughters, she began to be like a sister for me. If I wanted to share a secret... She's the one I'd tell.
6: The two would cook together for hours, go on trips to the Sea of Galilee, picnic under eucalyptus trees near the shore, and spend time exploring Tel Aviv.
8: We shared wonderful times together, more than you can imagine. She would wear my clothes. If she had something to do, she used to leave her daughters with me.
6: Years went by like this. And then suddenly, and out of the blue, Batya stopped coming to visit. She wouldn't take Afef's calls either. Afef didn't know what had happened. Did you think Mahmoud was cheating on you?
8: I asked him, is there anything? He answered, no. I asked him, why has she stopped visiting? He answered, I don't know.
6: A few months after Batya's sudden disappearance, Afef heard a knock at her door. It was Batya.
8: She had a key. She used to get in on her own. But she didn't open the door. I said, come in. Do you feel shy? She answered, I will not open the door. Come to see me.
6: Afef went to the door and opened it. In front of her stood her estranged friend. And in Batya's arms was a newborn baby.
8: She handed over the baby, practically throwing him in the air and into my arms.
6: The two women started crying. Without exchanging a single word, Afef understood that Batya and her husband had been having an affair. Who knows for how long. And, even more shocking, that this child must be theirs. But nevertheless...
8: The first words Batya said to me were... This boy is yours. He's your son. Not my son. I brought him for you, not for myself.
6: Unsurprisingly, the baby looked nothing like Afef. She had dark brown eyes and an olive complexion. He had blue eyes and pale skin. But their bond was immediate.
8: It was like our two souls were connected to each other. I saw an angel, an angel who fell into my lap.
6: Her husband and her best friend had betrayed her. But the very thing she had prayed for all these years was now within reach. What did you say to her?
8: Maqbool. Maqbool. Yes, I accept. I accept.
6: Afef dabs her eyes with the tissue. Then, after a long and pregnant pause... She says,
8: Look, it's true. I was angry, and very much so. But I had Amir.
6: Despite the pained look in her eyes, Afef's words remain matter-of-fact. It's obviously hard for her to access or share what I can only imagine must have been one of the most emotionally loaded moments of her life. Amir, still sitting on the couch, leans in. He's hearing many of these details for the first time, and seems transfixed. He bites his lower lip. It's clear he wants to hear more. So we ask again.
8: Let me ask her about her feeling again. You
6: want to know
7: the
8: truth? I wanted Mahmoud to have a baby. It wasn't from me. That's true. But in the end, he got a son.
6: Afef tells us that a couple of days after Bachia dropped off Amir. She, a fef, triumphantly carried the baby over to Mahmoud's brother, the same brother who had threatened to expel her if she didn't have a child.
8: I told him that I prefer to adopt a Jew than to ever leave this house. Alhamdulillah. Oh. Alhamdulillah.
6: The parents chose the name Amir because it's both Arab and Jewish. In Arabic, it means prince or ruler. And in Hebrew, it means a treetop. Afef began raising Amir as her own, but that wasn't an easy or obvious choice. Her family and neighbors scoffed at her and her blue-eyed baby boy, the fruit of an unlikely Jewish-Arab love triangle.
8: They were trying to interfere, saying, he's not your son. I used to take him in my hand and go out very proud. Of course he's my son. How can you say he's not? when I raise him and do everything for him.
6: Amir split his time between Umu Fakhim, where he lived with Afef, and Hertaliya, where he'd stay with Mahmoud, Batya, and her daughters. It was the mid-90s. The Oslo Accord seemed to hold the promise of a new future. And Afef, Mahmoud, and Batia were modeling some sort of unusual Arab-Jewish blended family. The two mothers, the biological one and the adoptive one, made amends and pushing all complications aside, resumed their friendship, where it had left off. On one of Batya's visits to Mufakham, she lay down on the sofa and put her head in a theft slap.
8: I stroked her hair. It was beautiful and smooth. And it was the color of red wine. Is it crazy? I asked her that I've accepted our situation. She said, no, it's not crazy. Because Amir is yours.:
6: No, no I need
5: that. I, I needed that
8: uh, the the
6: box, the box the, ah. Amir interrupts his mom and points to the tissue box she is holding. There are tears in his eyes.
8: I don't tell you these stories because I don't want you to feel sad. Do you think that I have anything more valuable, more precious, than you?
6: You know that, right? It's clear. Amir says. Then, turning to us, adds,
5: I love these new small stories because they are rare.
6: They're like gold. (laughs) Afef begins to hum a song, the lullaby she used to sing to Amir when he was a baby. A bit shy, she won't sing it all now, but she plays it on her phone instead. She then gets up and soon returns with a stack of old photo albums with pictures from those early days. He's showing your naked pictures. I know.
5: (laughs) How did I not think about taking this album out of the albums that
8: I brought?
6: There are pictures of Afef and Batya with all the kids, Amir and Batya's three daughters, at their side. Afef grows quiet, a nostalgic smile on her face. Dear one, she says looking at a picture of a beaming little Amir standing in front of a cake with candles. In a suit and everything, so fancy. That was
5: actually my first birthday. Wow. Uh And it was right here near the the table and the window that is right
6: Right
7: behind us. Yeah.
6: Afef recalls another conversation she had with Batya around that time, one she'd returned to in her head over and over again for years. Batya, she tells us, had said that her biggest fear was that if something were ever to happen to her, her daughters would be left alone with no one to look after them.
8: I said to her, I swear to God, I will raise them the same way I'm raising Amir. And the time passed and it happened. On July 18th, 1995,
6: not long after Batia and Afef had that conversation, their lives were upended. Though he was just a toddler, 15 months old, Amir claims to remember the sights and sounds of what happened at the Kfar-Hayarok Junction, a busy intersection north of
5: Tel Aviv. I actually remember the scenery, things that you don't pay attention to. Walls around, the road, the trees, confusion. I remember the ambulance. I remember being inside it, being held by my sister.
6: Batia was driving her kids to visit their dad at work, when a car, going in the other direction, ran a red light.
5: You know how sometimes time slows down in those critical moments and you decide what to do? She knew to hit the brakes and let the car hit where she was sitting to save all of us. But instead, she took all the damage.
6: As soon as Afaf found out, she rushed to the hospital. She was obviously relieved to learn that Amir and his sisters were all totally fine. Batya, on the other hand, was not. She lay in intensive care, in a coma. Afef whispered to her.
8: It's me, Afef. Can you hear me? If yes, move your head, close your eyes. I saw tears. She couldn't move her head or eyes. It was very difficult, a very difficult feeling. I can't talk about it.
5: The next thing I remember is being at home uh, with my mom. With my adoptive mom, not my biological mom.
6: Afef took the kids home and visited Batya, still unconscious, regularly. Whenever she'd bring Amir along, she'd go in first and tuck sweets into Batya's hands. Then she would come out and tell him that Batya had a surprise for him.
8: I used to tell Amir to kiss his mother on her head, then to take the candy from her hand.
5: And I had to go in and open her hand with
6: force to get the taffy Mm -hmm. inside. Weeks passed, then months. Batya remained in a coma, and it gradually became evident that she might never wake up. As had been tragically foreshadowed by Batya herself, her three daughters were left without a mother. And Afef swooped in and began taking care of both Amir and his sisters, just as she had promised she would. She even moved into Batya's home in her taliya, together with Mahmoud.
5: She took care of us as if we were her kids in every sense. Like, there was no difference between me and if she had her own son. Because I am her son.
6: In some ways, it was all normal. She cared for all four children as a mother would. She fed them, made sure they brushed their teeth, took them to school. But not everyone saw this in a positive light.
8: The father wanted his daughters.
6: The girl's abusive biological father couldn't fathom the thought of his three Jewish daughters being raised by an Arab.
8: He was Orthodox and said he didn't want them to stay with an Arab woman. The daughters refused and defended me and went to court. But it was out of our hands.
6: Afef is clearly hesitant to go into the whole custody battle story. But Amir, who has heard this part before, fills in some of the details. So the court started doing their investigation.
5: They sent social workers to try and get dirt on uh, my dad and mom, and they came for surprise checks, and they checked with the police, and they did a whole background check.
6: What they found, Amir says, was a safe environment and loving family. Multiple social workers and psychologists recommended that the daughters stay with Mahmoud and Afaf. But the official report also warned that, given the fact that Mahmoud and Afef were Muslim— Leaving the girls with them might cause, quote, confusion and future harm. Ultimately, it was decided that the girls be considered minors in need. The judge
5: was uh, a religious Jewish man, and he decided that three uh, Jewish girls can't live in an Arab uh, Muslim man's house. But they also can't go back to their abusive father.
6: Instead, they were sent to foster care.
5: So the family was completely split. Every sister went to a different foster home or uh, boarding school.
6: Because Amir was biologically Mahmoud's, he was able to remain at home.
5: And uh, I saw less of my sisters from then on. And by less, I mean like once every few months and on my birthday.
6: Despite her promise, Afef had failed to protect Batya's daughters. In the spring of 2000, after five years in a coma, Batya passed away.
5: I remember my sisters crying
6: and people that I don't know crying. Amir grew up in Herzliya, in a mostly Hebrew-speaking environment, in which he was mainly exposed to Jewish culture,
5: My parents were a bit concerned because I wasn't speaking Arabic very well. And uh, they were afraid that they were going to lose my Arabic side roots.
6: So shortly after Batya's death, and in an attempt to give Amir a clearer understanding of who he was, they left Herzliya and moved to Jaffa, which has a large Arab population. But the move didn't resolve his complex identity. See, traditionally, Jewish identity is passed down through the mother— whereas Muslim identity is passed down through the father. So depending on who you asked, Amir was solely one or the other, never both. And that was a lot to figure out, especially for a six-year-old boy.
5: Well, the general confusion was about me personally. Who am I? What is my more dominant side? That I was born from a Jewish mother, but I was raised as a Muslim Arab. So there were these two voices, two sides.
6: He was being raised as a Muslim.
5: And I liked being a Muslim.
6: But he also had Jewish siblings.
5: My older sister would always tell me, she was very much influenced by her racist father, she would always tell me, you're Jewish, don't be Arab, don't be Muslim. You are Jewish, you are born to a Jewish mother.
6: To complicate things further, Afef and Mahmoud instructed Amir not to share the secret of his Jewish mother with anyone.
5: They were afraid
6: that it would confuse me even more. It was, of all things, his hair that anchored Amir. That gave him his own sense of unique identity. As Afef had promised Allah all those years back, she never cut Amir's hair.
8: I raised Amir and his hair together. They grew up together. I brushed it out and braided it in the morning, in the afternoon, and at night.
5: We had a a daily routine. Every morning, she would open the braid, brush my hair, and remake the braid for the next school day. The hair
6: became, in many ways, a sacred symbol of her miracle baby, an umbilical cord almost, connecting her to a child that wasn't biologically hers. Amir wore his hair in a long, thick braid that hit the bottom of his back. It was kind of his thing. He was the boy with the braid.
5: And the more I grew, the more my hair grew with me.
8: Amir's hair meant the world to me. I was in love with Amir and his hair.
5: And it was a living, breathing part of me.
6: But when he was 11 years old, that seemingly stable part of his identity also came into question. His principal informed him that, as per school regulations, boys had to have short hair. If he didn't cut his hair, he'd be expelled. We
5: sat in his office, which was at the end of the hall. I think my mind went black. I didn't hear anything.
8: It was a part of us. I didn't know what to say. I was really sad for him to have to lose his long hair. But I ultimately agreed. I did it for him. Because he was a good student, I didn't want to sacrifice his future for his hair.
6: A few days later, it was time. We brought
5: a hairdresser, who is still my hairdresser to this day, uh, to the yard uh, in front of the house. And we invited the family. We brought two sheep to be slaughtered so we can break the promise to God and then I sat down under the pomegranate tree and the hairdresser stood behind me my mom made my braid for the last time the people all around me were all singing and chanting and clapping and cheering I was Crying my eyes out. When I felt that last few hairs hanging on to dear life,
6: being cut, I I shut down. Like Samson, Amir felt that he had lost his source of power, his sense of self. I
5: felt naked without my hair. My head was so
8: cold. I cried a lot, but I didn't let Amir see my tears. I was praying. You know what? When they brought me the braid, I took it and hugged it.
6: Amir gets up and opens a closet.
7: Oh my gosh,
6: He returns with a long braid.
5: I loved its feeling, its softness, its color.
6: While we admire it, Afef gets up and goes to the kitchen. A few minutes later, she comes back with dinner. Lentil soup, a seemingly endless stream of salads, pickled vegetables, and makluba, a favorite Arab dish of chicken, rice, and pine nuts. We take a break from the interview and start chit-chatting. Wow,
1: incredible. Huh. Your mother is an amazing woman, as you know. Yes, yes. And I hope this has not been too... I feel, I feel drained just sitting here,
6: so I can no, only imagine. Yeah. You know? uh, what about... Then, all of a sudden, Amir stops, mid-sentence. He's going, he's going to kill me. <laughs> My dad. Ah, Mahmoud
5: Mahmoud Mahmoud. Mahmoud,
7: Mahmoud,
6: Mahmoud, 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 Mahmoud. Mahmoud, Amir's dad, who wasn't totally happy about the story getting out, has unexpectedly come home. Mahmoud. Should we stop recording? do you want me to put this away?
5: So this is maklube.
6: Wow! Makloube <laughs> is... Amir uncomfortably switches the topic and focuses on the makluba, as if we are just average out-of-town guests. There are many varieties. Some people put cauliflower, some Uh, people put hummus. I wonder how persuasive that is, given the fact that my microphone is still at my side, my headphones are around my neck, and it's totally obvious we're in the middle of an interview. But I follow his lead. We all awkwardly start complimenting the food, which truly is, by the way. It's the best lentil soup
1: I've mm-hmm. ever eaten in my life.
6: And with that, evidently, our interview has come to an end. We'll be right back.
8: Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care.
0: I spent the greater part of a day at the Bnebruk Municipal Shatnez Laboratory and learned more than I ever thought I'd know about the perils of mixing linen and wool. You only need to take one thread. It doesn't even it doesn't cashmere. cashmere, uh, as long as it's 100 Several yeah, other
4: plants in the in the family, family of linen. sure. Kanali suits. Uh, um, the bast fibers. I believe policemen's uniforms uh, contain wool. Hemp and mm, they and They sheep. have factories. Mm, uh, 20 elsewhere. suits that are a uh, 40 regularly in China. And mohair. And, uh, uh, alpaca. Angara. Occasionally so, you get the tapes uh, of the armholes or uh, According pocket to, reinforcements. You know, the bare bones uh, halacha. Uh, within, uh, uh, something might be acceptable. Those all tested kosher,
0: so the only thing we needed to replace was the canvas itself. But there was one thing, which despite asking again and again, I never quite understood. What do you think it is, sort of philosophically, about mixing things that are different that is problematic? Uh, good question. Um...
4: I.
3: One second. Not sure I have an answer for this one. This is a choyk, a something that we don't. It's not something which you can give full explanation. The reason is not given
0: to it. Ben and Yehuda aren't alone. Many people have strong gut feelings when it comes to whether or not things should be mixed, but they can't always explain why. And that's something that Amir Jabarin, whose story we're hearing, has dealt with his entire life. Just before the break, Yoshi and Dina's interview got cut short by the surprise return of Mahmoud, Amir's dad, who wasn't so hot on the entire idea of sharing the story. But tenacious reporters that they are, they return for more. Dina Kraft takes it from here.
1: A few weeks after our recording day in Um Omelfachem was promptly interrupted... We return for another interview, this time just with Amir. He had had some time to take it all in and seemed calmer than he had been the first time.
5: There's like this Fakhmawi me. The Fakhmawi me is the Arab me, and it's my majority.
1: Fakhmawi is Arabic for someone who is from Umm Fahim. fakhim That's who he is now, securing his identity as a Muslim Arab-Israeli. But it's been a long and winding road. Questions about his mixed heritage about his mixed identity, continued to persist long after his braid was cut off. Over the years, they have confused him. But as he matured, he became better at living in peace with the inherent contradictions within his story. He is, he says, just like...
5: Water. I fit in easily in every shape.
1: And indeed, Amir has spent most of his life navigating between Jewish and Arab spaces. In university, most of his friends were Jewish Israelis. But in Um al where he and his parents now live, everyone is Arab. He's become an expert at playing the chameleon and applying the right social cues and customs in the right context.
5: For example, Arabs don't hug. And Jews do. With Arabs, I would shake hands. And with Jews, I wouldn't mind the fist bumping. Arabs, we get more of a objective conversation with a lot of hand gestures and with Jews you'd actually say that I felt this and that and that and it's more subjective
1: His fluent Hebrew and fair complexion have helped Amir pass as Jewish in Israeli circles Most Jews don't even know he's Arab at first But when they hear his last name, Jabareen, or learn that he is, in fact, Muslim, they often say,
5: No, don't be lying. You don't look Arab. You're not Arab. You're not talking with uh, an an Arab voice or an Arab tone.
1: When we ask him how this makes him feel, he shrugs it off. Amir is a true blue optimist and prefers to focus on the times he did fit in, like water. He shares many tales and gives many examples. But throughout them all, one name keeps coming up.
5: Anastasia. My best friend till this day.
1: Anastasia Wiener. She was the first university friend
9: with whom he shared the secret about his Jewish mom. I didn't understand what it meant for him to be half Jewish and half Arab. And it's uh, you know it's it's a very hard life. Like the Jewish people will always see you as an Arab, and the Arab guys will always see you as Jewish, and you will never fit in both ways.
1: Anastasia could understand Amir because she too came from a mixed family background. Her mother is Jewish and her father is Christian. She and her mom had immigrated to Israel
9: from Russia when Anastasia was 11. And it's the same, (laughs) you know, it's the same with me a little bit. Like, uh, I guess Israel doesn't see me as absolutely Jewish. Only a part of me is. Uh, And over there in Russia, I will always be a Jew. Amir and Anastasia became quick
1: friends and spent a lot of time together. Many of the other students, she says, were intrigued by the fact that Amir was an Arab. But they didn't treat him like everyone else. As soon as they'd discover he was Arab, suddenly all they'd want to discuss was the conflict or Gaza or his thoughts on the most recent terror attack. Some of them talked about him behind
9: his back. It was something about the way they spoke about him. Like, uh, will he hear this? I don't want him to hear this.
6: You
9: probably will hear that. I like the fat Arab that you're hanging out with. When is he going to leave us? Let's go make him stop following us. Stuff like that. Uh, But he was always referred to as Arab. Amir the Arab, Amir the freak.
1: More than a few saw Anastasia's friendship with Amir as a left-wing political
9: statement. It was as if they were saying, You're a traitor. It feels like you're a traitor to your country and to your heritage, and to you being Jewish.
1: In many ways, Amir's double identity means he's neither here nor there, shut out somehow of both worlds. He moved back to Umm al and after graduating with a prestigious degree in biomedical engineering from the Technion, started looking for a job in his field. For a very long time, he had no luck. He thinks that like many other Palestinian citizens of Israel, he's at a disadvantage when it comes to hiring because he didn't serve in the army. And he claims it was only after he changed the address on his CV from Um Umm al-Fachem to a nearby Jewish town that employers started responding at all. Sometimes, however, the pendulum swings the other way and it's his perceived Jewishness that hinders him. He recalls a time he was turned away from the Al-Aqsa Mosque
5: Before I got to step inside, they told me to stop. And they told me, well, you can't go in through this gate. This gate is for uh, Muslims only, for Arabs only.
1: Amir explained that he was indeed Muslim.
5: They asked to see uh, my ID. And it also says my birth mother's name,
1: Batya. They looked him up and down and said,
5: Why do you have a, a Jewish mother's name? Well, tell him, my biological mother was Jewish. And I was raised by my father, who is a Muslim, and I am Muslim. So I came to pray. They called their superior, and they gave him my ID number. He checked in the computer, and it says Jewish. No entry allowed. I told them, then, what am I going to do? I'm a Muslim who's not allowed to pray in al-Aqsa. That's against my religion. I started telling them pieces of the Quran by heart. I started speaking Arabic. I was confronted by a couple of potato heads. (laughs) They didn't see the person. It's easier for them to say no, and that's it
1: even with his own sisters, Amir can never just be himself. Instead, he has to carefully balance who he is and who he's expected to be. We spoke with one of his sisters who didn't want to be recorded, but agreed to let us quote her. I don't tell anyone that he's half Muslim, she said. It's basically a secret, but I also don't want him to feel that it's a secret or that we're hiding him. Through tears, she added, quote, I don't want to hurt Amir. I don't want to hurt him, but I simply don't know what to do. She wishes she could shout the truth from the rooftop or even just invite Amir to visit her home. But, she admitted, she's afraid of being judged for having an Arab brother. Another sister, who's a religious Jew, constantly reminds Amir that he is Jewish. Though they are relatively close and see each other quite often, she hasn't told her three children that Amir, their uncle, is Muslim. Amir says he understands... Though, I can't imagine it doesn't hurt. She's trying
5: to protect them from knowing that I'm Arab. They want actually to visit here. They don't know where I live, though.
1: Most Jewish Israelis don't visit Arab villages and cities. And omo the third largest Arab city in the country, is perceived to be a hub of pro-Palestinian nationalism and hostility towards Israel.
5: I asked her, what am I going to tell them? They asked me where I live. I, how... Do you want me to tell them I live in Umelfachem? No, just tell them you live in the north, near Afula. Fine, what, whatever you want. They call me like every week, sometimes
1: twice a week. And, as if on cue, his nephew calls, not once, not twice, but three times. He asks Samir when he'll come visit. Next week, Amir answers with a smile.
5: Eventually, she's going to have to tell them. uh, These things, it's not healthy to keep them hidden. And when she will, they will see that I'm still their uncle, I'm still the same person, and I'm sure that they'll see me exactly the same. I mean, these kids are nuts about me. And I'm okay with it. I'm still there. I'm like, uh, I'm on the fence, and the fence is high, and from that point of view, I can see everything clearly, from the top of my mountain.
1: When Amir says mountain, he's not just speaking metaphorically. So this mountain is called sit It's the same mountain upon which his father built a home for his mother all those years ago, where Batya had handed him over as an infant. And and where, bringing things full circle, he now lives. It's here that he's found his footing, here that he feels most himself. Amir takes us on a tour of his family's small olive grove. I see it as a connection
5: to my uh, agricultural heritage, as a uh, falahi farmer from Om fakhim Falah is someone who does farming in the old ways,
1: when he works the land, he feels like he's creating another link in a chain that stretches way back.
5: When I was plowing the land, uh, it's like I was imagining all of my ancestors holding on to that plow and uh, helping me drive it into the hard land. It's like they were always there.
1: He shows us how he methodically collects the olives from one of the trees into a tarp below. And, looking out toward the nearby hills of the West Bank, says...
5: Everybody's picking olives right now. I'm doing it here, they're doing it there. But we're all doing the same thing.
1: This land has become his Garden of Eden, his refuge, his home and has also anchored him in what he feels is a pillar of Palestinian culture. While many Jews, he says, feel a connection to the land of Israel as a whole, many Palestinians feel a connection to a specific plot of land.
5: For Arabs, we have our land. So I have my parents' land. This land belonged to my grandfather and to his father before him.
1: Amir points to a stone house on his family's property. He says it's 225 years old. Weeds grow in the cracks. Its roof has mostly caved in, and the mortar has eroded long ago. But, he tells us, if you look closely, in some spots, you can still see fingerprints of those who built it.
5: This house is the oldest in Um al Fahem. Seven generations grew up in this house and were born physically in the house, including my father. My father was born in this house. He was born inside this house.
1: Amir's now trying to get funding in order to repair the house and turn it into a museum of Palestinian cultural heritage.
5: Let's go to my home.
1: We make our way up the hill, and Amir guides us through a wooden gate and into a large wild garden. Oh, we have food, we have onion. Have At the center of the garden is a three-story concrete behemoth there. under construction. The, the there are ladders are and bags away. of plaster everywhere. Yeah. Like his ancestors uh, before him, he's building a house, a house, a house in which he plans, one here, day and God willing, to,
3: like to raise to a
1: family of his own. His parents, he, he says, will live so. on the bottom floor, and he'll live on the second floor. But he seems most excited about the roof.
3: The roof
5: will be the place where we're going to host in the future when groups come for uh, Ramadan and uh, other occasions.
1: The roof isn't ready yet, but nevertheless, we climb up and take a moment to feel the wind on our faces.
5: Woo! So it's open, it's airy. Wow, we're really high. It's basically like flying.
1: The view is breathtaking. Below us, we see Umm al terracotta-colored roofs, its small and winding streets, its minarets and the golden domes of the mosques. As we speak, muezzins across the city begin their call to prayer. Amir is still piecing together the unusual story of his three parents. But as he stares out into the distance, like a proud prince or Amir atop his castle, it's clear that more than ever, he's taking ownership of that story, his story.
5: It's kind of like therapy to tell the story. It sharpens all the details, makes the movie in my head clearer, puts everything in order.
1: Amir doesn't know when or if people in Israel, his sisters, his university friends, his future employers, or even the guards at Al-Aqsa, will ever become more accepting of his mixed identity— but he does know where his home is and where his future will be on this exact plot of land with its flowering garden, olive trees, and a house with a view.
5: I'm rooted. This place is my roots. I can't imagine being anywhere else.
1: As he speaks of roots, he gestures to an old tree down below us.
5: This tree was planted by my great-grandfather. It's been here forever, long before I was born, was struck by lightning twice, storms, droughts, fires. Nothing was able to budge this tree, and I feel the same. I feel proud being on the edge of the central mountain, against the winds from east and west, completely open, but can't be budged. I-
0: Yoshi Fields, and Dina Kraft. You can check out their new and thought-provoking podcast, Groundwork, wherever you get your podcasts. And finally, I just brought with me, if you don't mind, my favorite shirt for you
3: to see if you think it's okay. Do you think that this is... At my first glance, this looks to me 100% cotton. Uh, And uh, although this is multicolored, all the colors are from one type of thread... I'll just look at the label and see whether I'm right. Yeah, it's 100% cotton, yeah. So it looks completely kosher? Yeah,
0: yeah. Well, thank you so much, Rabbi Shloss. Really, thank you. Okay. I'm glad to hear that my shirt is, is okay. Yeah.
1: <laughs>
0: Zev Levi scored in sound design this episode with music from Blue Dot Sessions. Sela Weisblum created the mix. Thanks to our translator, Darin Jube, and to Sally Abed, Elhamna Saradin, Susan Bell, Yoni Yav, Wayne Hoffman, Esther Werdiger, Sheila Lambert, Erica Frederick, Jeff Fagan, Joy Levitt. You can catch up on all our past episodes on our site, IsraelStory.org, or by searching for Israel Story wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all under Israel Story. Lastly, if you're interested in sponsoring episodes of Israel Story, email us at sponsor at israelstory.org. Our staff includes Yochai Metal, Zev Levi, Yoshi Fields, Skyler Inman, Nomi Schneider, Adina Karpuch, Eli Blyer, Sharon Rapaport, and Rotem Zin. Tanya Huyard and Matthew Littman are wonderful production interns. Jeff Umbro from the Paglomerate is our marketing director. I'm Mishi Harman, and we'll be back next time with our next to last Israel story episode of the season. So till then, Shalom Shalom, and Yalabai.
7: God about us, and the Bible didn't mention us, and the Bible didn't mention us. I was beautiful